Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. Recorded live here at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. My guest this week is really a treat. I mean, I'm having a hard time acting normal in the presence of vocalist extraordinaire Paul Rogers. Ah. Paul, good to have you here. It's good to be here, Bob. Thanks I mean, for having me. For those people who don't know, I distinctly remember hearing All Right Now on the Merritt Parkway with that riff. It just blasted out of the stereo. And then, of course, I was a huge Bad Company fan, bought the first album when it came out in the summer of 74, just after I graduated from college. I saw you at the Arms show with Jimmy Page. Uh, I have a big history, so this is great. Oh, so, thank you. Okay, so great to be here. So now this summer you're on tour with Jeff Beck and Ian Wilson. That's right. How did that come together? Well, it it's actually came together... Um, I did a tour in the UK, reliving Free, that the band had played All Right Now originally, and I called it Free Spirit, because I was playing with this band, um, I should back up a little bit, we did, um, some charity shows, uh, myself and Pete Bullock's band, and um, they played the free material so very well that I said to them, like, one day we should take this on tour. It was, it's such a, a great feeling. And um, so we did, uh, every year we did, uh, for about three years, we did a charity show there for Willows, which is um, an animal sanctuary, and all the proceeds went up to Willows. And uh, Cynthia, my dear wife Cynthia, will tell you all about Willows. If if she's sitting in the control room right now, uh, you know. And um, so we did that, and uh, then the club closed down. The club we were playing at closed down, so everybody was a bit sad. And I said, "Well, we'll tour it one day. We'll take this whole thing out, and we'll do it entirely free material." And we did that last year in the UK, and it was so warmly received that um, I said to to Pete, you know, and the guys. Let's take it to America. Let's let's go on to America with it. We were initially just going to do small clubs, uh, small theatres, actually. And uh, it's kind of the way we did in the UK, it's, but it's kind of grown a little bit since Jeff Beck and Ann Wilson were, uh, you know, came on board. And uh, I've worked with Jeff before. I've worked with Ann before. And uh, it's going to be great. Okay, Howard Lease. Originally from Hart, he's in your band, correct? He's in my solo band, right. and he also deps for Mick Rouse when we do when we go out as Bad Company. Is that how you know Ann Wilson, or is that just serendipitous? Well, I know I, we sort of crossed paths over the years. I met her when did I? First, I can't remember when I first met her, but I know that she really touched my heart one day. I was doing um, a recording in Seattle. And she was next door. I was recording the Beatles. I once had a girl. Oh, should I say she once had a girl? Well, one of the amazing things, you know, I went to see you at the L.A. County Fair almost two summers ago. And the legend about you is, unlike everybody else, you still have your voice. Oh. You, you can still sing. <laughs> is there a, you're also known as being an incredible health 
Is there a reason for that, or is there something, or is this just genetics? Well, I think part of it, I mean, a huge part of it is my wife, Cynthia. She's, um, she had a fitness show, and um, she's a very, very fit person. And when I met her, I had to get my act together a little <laughs> bit, you know. But I do, I mean, I, I do value, I mean, a lot of people do, and it value as being as fit as you can. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big plus for whatever you do. And in my case, for singing, it really does help, you know, because it's, it's grueling on the road. And um, so anyway, uh, to finish that story... No, no, we're getting back. I'm big okay. on digression. Yeah. <laughs> we're in the studio in Seattle and Ann Wilson is next door. I did not forget yeah, she, that. she did. I mean, she popped her head in. She said, oh, that sounds nice. And I, and I said, oh, come in. And she said, do you want me to put a harmony on that? And I said... Yes, <laughs> and, uh, and she she went walked straight up to the mic and did a beautiful harmony on it, and she came back. She said, "Was that okay?" I said, "It was absolutely fantastic." Anne. And uh, she said, okay. And she waved. She walked out. She was gone. Just like that. And it was so nice of her just to give herself like that. Approximately how long ago was this? Oh, man. This was probably 15 years ago. Okay. Mm, a long time back. And uh, I just love her. I think she's great. I think she's a great artist and she's a lovely person. Yeah. And, and Jeff, how do you know Jeff? Or, I mean, we all well, know Jeff is yeah. and we've met him, but uh, how do you have a personal relationship with him? Well, Jeff Beck, I mean, Jeff Beck first touched me, actually, when I heard the Truth album, what it's called the Truth album. And, uh, with Rod Stewart as with a vocalist. Rod Stewart. First solo album by, uh, by uh, yes. Jeff Beck. And it's shapes. So, yeah, shapes. <laughs> yes. Drop I mean, the needle on that and go, holy yes. shit. I know. And, and there is a song. And I don't like the title, but they called it Rock My Plimsoll. I right. think it's actually Rock Me Baby, but it's the best version of that I ever heard. You can rock me. I mean, they really rip it up. And this was before Zeppelin, before Cream, before Hendrix broke in England, uh, and any of those fantastic acts. Um, and they really set the bar, I think, for the next 50 years of rock and roll. They don't even know it. I mean, they'd probably go, uh-huh, we did. But I don't, I, but they really did. I mean, they certainly did for me because that, that Rod Stewart singing and Jeff's guitar and I think it was Mickey Waller on the drums. And I do believe it is... Uh, the guitarist with Ronnie the Wood, Ronnie Wood bass. on bass. Yes. And the bass is a do, 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 do. You know, they're like it right in sync. Do, do, do. And uh, it was just so great. And I, I always wanted to sing. That's been such an inspiration for me for years. So, and we've done things together, Jeff and I. He was, I did a tribute to Muddy Waters, give him a call. And, and he, he played three tracks and he was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, we go way back. Okay, you know? so... Best guitarist of all time, best rock guitarist. Well, you know, I, my favorite, the, the, my soulmate really was Paul Kossoff uh, with Free. That's when I first met him. Uh, I was playing at a little blues club in Finsbury Park, and he came up and said, "I've got a guitar in the in the car. Can I get up on stage and jam?" And I said, "Absolutely, bring it in. Let's go." And uh, he was this long haired He had hair down to like past his. Uh, you know, past his butt, really. And, and he had uh, the most amazing Levi's on for the day. Levi's didn't make flares, but he t bought two pairs and put a, <laughs> had a tailor put a little V in each side, each leg. And he looked, he was, and he, handmade boots. He was just so cool. And, uh, and he got up and we played B.B. Uh, King. We played Every Day I Have the Blues, I think. We played uh, Stormy Monday. 
And he just at times stood still for everybody in the place. And I said to him afterwards, we must form a band. We've got to get something together. And that's how Free was born. Okay, let's let's yeah. go sideways, then go back to the beginning. Okay. So Paul dies on a flight back to the UK. I mean, not Paul. Yeah, Paul Kossoff. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, I hear varying things. I hear that he OD'd. Al Cooper, who's a big friend of his, says he didn't really OD. His heart gave out, which I would think would be drugs. Can you give us any insight on that? I, you know, I understood him to have OD'd. That's, his, that's actually all I know, but I might be wrong. But for me, um, he was always a very together guy. He was never into heavy drugs. I mean, really? One gets the impression from a distance that, oh, you know, there goes another one. He was just typical of the, you know, the genre. But not really. When we first got together, he did all the driving. He drove the band um, up and down the country, you know, eight hours here, eight hours there, did a show on top of that, or three shows, actually. And he was really, really together. We we didn't dabble in drugs. We smoked a bit of weed, quite a bit of weed, I must admit. And um, uh, that's as far as we went. We didn't do the chemical thing. I was very much against putting anything of, of, of that nature into my body, you know. Um, but I didn't mind a little weed, as it were, because I thought that was kind of, you know expanding your mind. <laughs> right. That's what we all thought in those days. And that's, that's I think, that's how come the, the drugs, the, the chemical drugs mm, got consumed because, because it was like, a, it was like, oh, if, if that expands your mind, then, you know, heroin and cocaine must really expand your mind. Well, you know, it doesn't really. And he got into all that stuff uh, after Free had split up, which was a very, very sad thing. I, I, we did a couple of sessions together, and he pl- the, the track you should listen to, really, if you want to hear the heart and soul of Paul Kossoff, is a song we did called Come Together in the Morning. Um, and do diddle, diddle, diddle. I mean, he, he plays his heart and soul it's just amazing. It is so beautiful. Now, I'm a huge fan. I was always a fan. I bought Fire and Water, but mm-hmm. about 20 years ago, A&M put out an anthology, two CDs of molten gold, whatever, and you listen to the work on that. I mean, I, I'll be creeping. I always love, but the sound on the Steeler, just the way the guitar yes. sounds, yes. unbelievable. But let's go back. So you're from where in the UK? I'm from Middlesbrough, which is a town in the northeast an industrial, heavy industrial town, steel mills and shipbuilding. Uh, and I came down... I well, before you go, what did your father do? What did your father My do for father you? worked in the steel mills. And you have siblings? Oh, I, yes, I'm a, uh, one of seven. One of seven? And uh, where are you in the hierarchy? I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle, actually. I have three older sisters... Uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. So I'm right in the middle of seven. Now, Ray Davis always talks about being turned on to music by his older sisters. Was that the case with you? Yeah. I mean, they were teenagers when I was, was still a toddler, as it were. So, I mean, you know, I, I, they, they loved Elvis Presley, and I used to, like, wonder what it is about this guy. And I'm still lived... wondering. Although I had a good time at Graceland, <laughs> I'm still wondering on the music. Yeah. Well, he did, you know, I mean, guys like that, they... They have something special. I think they do. The Beatles had something special too. And there are very many people that give to the world themselves through their music. I don't know. You know, it comes from it comes from like I don't know the universe or something. And they are conduit. They are a conduit for a change in many ways. And I think Elvis was one of those people. You know, I never saw a bad photograph of Elvis. He always looked amazing. 
Uh, Although the t- in Vegas, the bloated Elvis oh, well, didn't I mean, look so good. But before yeah, that, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And that's funny. And I'm sure you've been to Memphis and you go to like the tailor that he used. It was like, it, you know, we live in a modern era. We figure everyone's using the best people. It was kind of backwoodsy. And they yes, figured it all it was out. Surprisingly so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he was influenced by a lot of the soul music and the blues that was going on. Although the Colonel, I think, kept that separate, you know. I mean, he's a white guy. And they, they, and he was like, they, he was one of a kind, one of, just one of a kind. But I think he was definitely, I've got a photograph of him with B.B. Uh, King. And I never saw that throughout his years. Right. You know, never so saw him. Yeah. You never saw that connection. Exactly. That's an interesting point. Never thought he never saw him mixing with the African-Americans. And he was really, the, he was really right in the center of it. And it couldn't help but be influenced by it, I think. And so there it is. And it's a beautiful thing. Okay. So you're in the northeast of UK. How do you get interested in music? Well, um, I, I... I, the radio was on an awful lot of the time when I was growing up. We had something called Radio Fusion. You get TV and you get free radio. So the radio, because it was free, it was on all the time. And I, I listened to Frank Sinatra growing up because it was just there on the radio. Love and marriage, you know. And, and I was I was always amazed at uh, the quality of the vocals in, in those days. Uh, Andy Williams, you know, f- Frank, of course. And, and uh, although... It's only looking back that I was amazed. I, I just accepted it at the time. But one day when I was about 13, uh, my father bought me a guitar. He, he came home. Well, he, what was the inspiration? Guitar. Had you asked for a guitar? No, I, I, right out of the blue. And I didn't quite know what to do with this thing. I mean, I thought, well, it's got, it's going to be easy to play. Well, it wasn't. And um, so I switched to the bass because bass has four strings and therefore is easy to play and in, did you play four did you get a bass or was it four strings on the guitar he brought oh, you i got a bass yeah well actually what happened was i because i had the guitar that made me eligible to join the class band there was a band in the in the class and this uh, was something that was organized by the school or no, just no, the people no, just the was, people who no, went the school was not interested in rock and roll at all <laughs> you know in those it's very strict i mean uh, so, no, this was ex- entirely outside of the school curriculum. And so we all got together in, in Mick Moody, his kitchen, and banged pots and pans. If I had a hammer, a hammer in the morning, and all, and all that, we thought we were dead good. The hootenanny era. You know, and, and so, but I switched to bass, and we got, we kept at it. We got more and more professional. And, and one, well, you know, in our mind, we did. Right. He, he, Mick had a, um, an AC30, which we all plugged into. Explain so to my audience what that is. Uh, oh, it's, uh, it's an AC, Vox AC30. is an amplifier. The Beatles used them, actually, Vox's AC30s. And it had a lot of inputs. Uh, so in theory, you could plug everybody into it. But, of course, you are overloading it quite a bit. But anyway, we didn't worry about that. We just plugged in and we, away we went. And we did this kind of privately apart from driving his parents up the wall, I should imagine, <laughs> until one day a very nosy neighbour said, oh, oh, you've got a band, have you? Go on then, play us a song. And we looked at each other. We'd never played to anybody before. And this was our big chance, I think, in, in a way. And so we played whatever it was, and she clapped at the end of it. And we thought, oh, this is good. And uh, so that broke the ice a little bit. Then we started to do shows and, on, you know, 
you just stay with it. And you're playing shows playing what material? Well, we played a mixture of what was in the charts at the time until we discovered soul music and blues music, actually. Um, I remember we we played at one place, which was right next to... It was a youth club. It was right next door to the pub. And the pub closed, and, and it was only a few kids in, little younger kids, and a great... The doors at the back burst open, and all these drunken youngsters from the pub came in looking for a fight, looking for trouble. Just as we were going to... I know you want to leave me, but <laughs> I, I refuse, refuse to let, to let you. And they all, like, stopped at the door. Just the music actually stopped them in their tracks. And they, they all start, And then they all started dancing. And we looked at each other and we thought, wow, the power of music. Because, you know, they looked like trouble and, and uh, it was great. It, it was a great night. You learn things like this, you know. Okay, so at what point did you realize you could sing? Actually, uh, I, I, I'm still learning, to be <laughs> honest. Uh, but, I mean, I, I love to listen to Howlin' Wolf. I was a very... When I think back, it's very unusual to think of a 13-year-old boy sitting up in his room listening to... Uh, listening to... I have had my fun. You know, Howlin' Wolf. If I don't get well no more. You know... Talking about he's dying. No, if listen, all those lyrics. Body, all those lyrics we listened to as a kid. I listened to them and I said, yeah. well, now I understand them. I just sang them then. I didn't understand I, them. Well, no, I didn't. I mean, you know, she must be tired of living. I'll put her six feet in her grave. I mean, this is tough stuff, man. <laughs> you know, those guys lived a heck of a life. And, yeah, you do. You just kind of like, oh, that's the lyrics, right? <laughs> you know, uh, but that was a reflection of their life and, and how life was for them. And it just, no matter what they were singing about, though, there was a real deep spirit to the music, a real passion. And, and, and they, didn't, they didn't take any prisoners musically. They just were doing this because they wanted to do it. Um, and I guess they... They had their own scene going down there in Memphis and, and round there, uh, and the, the bars and uh, and the chicks and the booze and just everything, the whole lifestyle. I it to me it it uh, it it opened my eyes to another world, you know. But the music itself was something that I really wanted to do. I wanted to do that I, for some reason. I thought well, you saw it as a career at that young age. Well, I. Wasn't thinking about careers, but I just wanted to, to do that. I want to do that, you know, somehow, uh, wherever it takes me. And I think that's kind of the story of my life in May. Okay, I, I but you, but you I leave. emulate those guys. You leave and go to London at age 15, you said? Uh, age 17. I was, a, 17. I was an old guy by the time. Okay, I so at 17, you, fin <laughs> you finish what we call high school? Yeah, I finished school. Uh, I graduated at uh, 16, actually, okay. in those days. And then I worked uh, at a paint store in the in the uh, in the back of the paint, and we do did gigs around town. But it was always um, the music that was number one for me. I I only worked there because I had to have a job. Right, I had to put food on the table. Oh, I mean, I had to pay my mum and stuff. So I, uh, but music was the thing, and we were always. But it, by this point, before you left home, the Beatles had hit, right? Yeah, the Beatles were everything. In the world. Right, because they yeah. certainly were in America. Yeah. And, okay, so how do you decide to go to London? We just, 
did actually. We just said, and well, who's we at this point? Oh, well, it was me. Uh, it was me, Mick Moody, Bruce Thomas, and uh, Dave Usher. Dave Usher was the drummer. Wild Bruce Thomas, who ultimately played with uh, Elvis Costello. Yes, actually, yes, he did. He went on to play with him. I understand. And um, uh, Dave Usher was a wild and crazy guy, a big head of ginger hair. He gave me a lot of blues records. He gave me some of the Howling Wolf I had as well. Uh, singles, very hard to find nowadays. Um, and we just all decided, well, let's go. To, I, I remember actually saying to my mum, I'm thinking of going, we're thinking of going down to London and like making the big time. <laughs> and uh, I was surprised because I thought she'd say, you're not going, you're not going down to London. And that would have been the end of it, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have gone. If she'd have said no, I would not have gone. But she said, okay, well, man, now you go. I'm like, huh, <laughs> that's, that's permission. Oh, my God. So I went back to the, to the rest of the guys and said, well, I'm on. Are you on? And so it was like, if we dare, dare we, dare we? And we went down and uh, promptly were very, very hungry for a long time. Yeah. Well, what was the first break or the first change that uh, put you on the right path in London? Uh, well, what happened for me was that, you know, the, the rest of the guys, they, they didn't like being hungry. They didn't want to uh, continue, and they went back home, actually. And I stayed down there, and I met Paul Kossoff um, it, it, at the blues club I mentioned earlier. And really, we put that band together in the space of a, a few months, and then Andy Fraser came along. He knew uh, um, Alexis Corner. Alexis Corner put us in touch with a couple of We tried a couple of people, actually, but we eventually uh, found Highland Records and Chris Blackwell. And they were, along with Chrysalis, they were in uh, Oxford Street. They, had, they were sharing offices at the same time. I mean, they became very... Chrysalis had Jethro Tull and Joe Cocker and all these people uh, that later became stars. So... Everybody was becoming a star overnight. Everybody you were bumping into in the street. It was, you know, you, one day you were at the marquee. <clears throat> the next day they were in the charts. And it was, it was just, the, that was the time, that was the period of, that was what it was like in those days. And everywhere you went, there was music, it seemed, coming out of the windows. Uh, and there was, suddenly there was Hendrix and there was Cream and all this music was really happening. So we were in the midst of all that. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with legendary vocalist Paul Rogers, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. This podcast is brought to you by TuneIn, which brings together all the live sports, music, news, and podcasts you love. Original, live, and on-demand audio all in one place. Go to TuneIn.com slash sets to download and listen. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Paul Rogers. So you get a record deal. Now, in the U.S., Free flew under the radar until all right now. What was the level of success in the U.K.? Well, we were what they call an underground band. We, we weren't commercially successful, but uh, word of mouth was enough. We would fill out all the clubs in the in the UK wherever we played and we played everywhere we went over to Germany too and we played in France sometimes and we played in, in countries in Europe um, 
uh, wherever we went, we it was kind of we were bubbling under. And uh, yeah, so now at this point, you're singing, but you're also writing. When did you become a writer? Ah, yes. Well, just about the time I met Paul Kossoff, I had written. I thought about songwriting, and I thought, well, now, how do you write a song? And we would, we'd, I'd been playing a lot of blues, and there's a thing called the 12-bar blues, which is a great structure, uh, and there are so many variations of it, and it's a, it's a brilliant structure. Whoever, evo- wherever that evolved from, it, 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 I think it came from God himself, because it's a structure upon which you can hang your soul. You can put any kind of lyric, anything you want to say. The first line, then the second line repeats that, then there's the killer line. Uh, my throat is dry, my knees are weak, it's so damn hot I can't even speak, walk in my shadow. And we, I wrote a song, I thought, well, if you write a riff, in the 12-bar structure, and then you put your own lyrics on it, you've written a song, haven't you? And so that was my first song. And then... Uh, um, Paul Kossoff gave me some uh, uh, music, a piece of music. And I wrote, he said, can you write lyrics to that for me? And I did, and that became Moonshine. So we were now we were songwriters, and it was, it was a natural step. Okay. And uh, go on. I was going to say that we, we had a, about three or four of our own songs, Freed It initially, and uh, it, why it, was it named free? Oh, it was named free because during the uh, when the f- about the first time we got together at the Nags Head, uh, which is a pub in Battersea, and there was a room above it that bands rehearsed in. We we had our first rehearsal there, and we were playing Moonshine, the song that Koss had given me to write the lyrics to. When um, sit here alone and cry, and it was a big climax thing, and um, yeah, and then Alexis Corner came in. He, he walked in at that moment with his family, his wife and kids, and uh, sat down. We all took a break and we sat down. And he said, "Well, I've been listening outside the door, and you are a band." And we looked at each other because when we when we walked into that room, we were four separate people. But because we could say, "Well, do you know Spoonful? Do you know Every Day I Have the Blues?" and we all played. Uh, a lot of blues songs because they're very good to jam on. That's the beauty of it, actually. Uh, and we were a band by the time we'd finished rehearsing. And he said, "Okay, you sound like a band. All you need now is a name." And everybody sat pensively, thinking, "Hmm, a name, yeah." And he said, "Well, if it helps you, I used to have a band with Cyril Davis, a harmonica player, uh, and we called it Free at Last." And everybody sat for a minute, and it seemed to be like a, a group decision. They said, well, it's got to be free, hasn't it? Free. And that was and that was it, without a word. It was like a cosmic decision, you know. Right. And how do you write all right now? Well, Andy and I, Andy Fraser and I, started to get into uh, seriously writing when I, I moved into his house, actually, because his, I had nowhere to stay, and his mum said, well, you can sleep on the couch. So I sleep on the couch... And, and of course, we was music, right? Get the bass out. And, and he wrote uh, 
uh, music and I wrote lyrics and I wrote lyrics and uh, I wrote music and he wrote lyrics. So we, we just wrote songs and that's all we did. And it was amazing discovery actually to find that, you know, you could go enter a room with nothing really and come out with a song or two or three. Uh, and this was going on and we were just, we were Lennon and McCartney all of a sudden. And it was, uh, it was a very creative time. So All Right Now was, I, we got to a point where we were playing about half and half, half of our own songs and half the blues that we had originally set out playing. And uh, I just thought, like, you know, if we want to be different and unique and have our own voice, we need to write, uh, we, all the songs in our set need to be our own songs. So we set about doing that and dropping the blues out of our set. Um We could never drop a song called The Hunter, which is an Albert King song, which is just so great. Freeze, I think the definitive version, other, other than uh, his. Uh, thank you. You know, it's, it's interesting, actually. When we played that song, we thought we were very close to the record. And um, uh, years after a year went by or something, we'd been playing The Hunter, and I, I put the original back on, and we were so different from it. I, I couldn't believe it. Because you just play it night after night, it becomes your own song, you know, and you'd play it that slightly differently. So anyway, we had a full set of all our own material, but we could not drop the hunter. <laughs> we could not get off the stage in Sunderland. And I, I kid Sunderland. you not, <laughs> you could not leave the stage until you'd done the hunter. They would have torn the place apart. And so I said, man, we've got to come up with a song that's at least as good as The Hunter. We still haven't dropped it, actually, to be honest. Um, and, and so I said, it could be something very simple, very, something that the audience can sing, like, 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 all right now. And I said, actually, give me that guitar. That's it. And we did the chorus, and that was, that was the chorus. Okay, then, so you came up with that. You said it's going to be something like All Right Now. And it you was started right there. Right there. Wow. Right there. And then Andy took that home and, and, and worked out the verse chords, which, were, which of course are da, yeah. da, da, da. So he gave that to me. And I, he said, uh, so I, I worked backwards from the chorus. Whatever um, the verse was going to be, it had to climax with It's All Right Now. So what was going to happen? I, and I, I thought of a scenario. And I'd actually, Ringo Starr had said, I'd read an interview, basically, to, oh, the Beatles, well, you know, whenever a boy meets a girl, uh, it's, a, it's a brand new story. You know, every love affair is a brand new story because two people come together and they have their own story and that's it becomes one. That's pretty meaningful. <laughs> you know, right. and it means something to everybody. And I thought, well, that's a good theme for a song. Boy meets girl, what happens? So, okay. And that's, the, the song just flowed out. Uh, there she stood in the street. What was she doing? Well, she was smiling from her head to her feet. Oh, that's good. Uh, I said, hey, what's this? Maybe she needs, she needs a kiss. Uh, and all that. And it just like flowed out. And I was writing this when they, I'd finished it. I was in my, my little flat in London and I was finishing up when, the, when I heard a beep outside. Beep, beep, come on, let's go. And they picked me up to go for the show and I had the lyrics. So we did it that night. And we used to do uh, two 45-minute sets in those days. We'd play 45 minutes, take a break, and then do another 45 minutes. Well, when we first started, when we uh, kicked off the, that evening, um, we played. We opened with All Right Now, and it went down a storm. There was only like about 15 people in the crowd, but they all went nuts for it, right? So three hours later, by the time we come to the second set of the 45, I said, uh, I, and, I, and it was full by that time, 
I said, uh, it's request time. Anybody got any requests? And uh, these 15 people said, play that first song you started with. So I knew we had something special right then. Okay, but Kossoff was not one of the writers. From the beginning, did he have that definitive guitar part? Oh, well, it's his sound. It's right. definitely his sound. The Les Paul through the Marshall, the 58 Les Paul through the But the way it would start, when you and Andy were writing it, did you envision that? Well, that's that's what we were doing. That was um, Andy and I. Uh, how can I put it? I have to think back, actually. But Koss has a way of playing the A chord, and he had such strong, long fingers. He could hit the um, on the fifth fret. They could get an extra double A out of it. He could hit the uh, E string on the fifth fret and give himself an extra A. That's what gives it a lot of low end. Wow. And um, plus the the his guitar, uh, you know, it had the sound. Had okay, the so sound. how long after you write it do you record it? Oh, I don't think it would have been very long. I don't know. Okay, you finish recording it. Do you know it's a monster hit? Oh, we don't know it's a monster hit. We feel it's a good live song, and it's what I was looking for in terms of the hunter. It was it matched the hunter. Still not. I mean, still the hunter is still a great, great song. Uh, but it was up there, and the, it had the big plus of being having the audience participation aspect of it, which was good. Um, when when do we record it? We recorded it um, downstairs in Basing Street. Um, Chris Blackwell, Island Records had bought a church by then, and downstairs there was what we called the crypt. The cat crept into the crypt, crapped and crept out again. Is that <laughs> what we used to say. <laughs> we were down there. And we recorded, uh, and um, we recorded it in the small smaller studio downstairs. Uh, we were doing a lot of shows then, so we were very much a live band, and everything we wanted to play, even recording-wise, we had to be able to reproduce on stage. So everything was very, very simple. wasn't a lot of production. was no big strings on it or extra piano or anything like that. It was going to be the four guys playing it, so it had to be uh, something that we could you could listen to on the record and we could walk out on stage and play it just like that. Although we did, we did actually double-track the... Uh, the guitar part, I'm sure we probably did, underneath the solo particularly. But we used to just wing that on stage. Okay, but you record it. You say, oh, this is a great live track. You don't see it as a big radio track. You don't see it as a big hit. Well, we didn't think in those terms. Uh, 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 I mean, no, we didn't really think in those terms, actually, no. And then it becomes a big hit. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? What goes through your mind when it becomes the biggest track of the summer, 1970? Well, it was incredible. It really was incredible, actually. You you sort of walked on air. You know, we'd actually done it without even um, knowing what we were doing, actually. <laughs> yeah. How do you follow that? I don't know. We, we, we wanted to release uh, The Steeler. Actually, you mentioned The Steeler earlier. That was our uh, follow-up tour right now, in our minds, because uh, all of the band partook in the songwriting of that. And we just felt strongly about it. But Chris Blackwell wanted to release Ride on Pony, which is still a good track, I think. Um, but we wanted to release The Steeler, and The Steeler was released, but it did not do as well. It didn't, it didn't rock the streets the way um, All Right Now had done. Let's go back to All Right Now. You're a co-writer. It's an iconic song, almost 50 years old. Did you get paid on it? 
Oh, yes. Yes, we did. I mean, I, we, were, we actually signed away our publishing rights, a lot of them, to Island Records. We were very, very green. I was so green. I remember when I signed the contract, I said, it said, 1, 000, it said something or other, then it said 1,968. And I went, is that how much I owe you guys? They went, no, that's the date. <laughs> said, that's, that's how much I do contracts, you know. So I, we, we did sign it. Uh, pretty much away, but we're not complaining. No, but at this late date, do you still get paid on all right now? We still get paid, yeah. But it's not it's not um, it's not what you would call um, uh, industry industry level. It's what it is. Okay. Now, shortly after the hit, the band breaks up. Yes. Yes. Sadly, yeah. So what was going on there? Well, we were so I, I've thought about it a lot, and, and it, we were so tight. We 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 were we lived together. We ate, slept, and and drank. Really, the band and everything was to do with the band. I, well, I just think it got very very intense. I think we felt we owned each other to some extent, and I I kind of needed to get away from the band and find out who I was and define myself because. It, I, I was such a member of the band. I wanted to find out where the band stopped and I began, or I began and the band stopped. If you like, we were just so, so like this one thing. And we had our, we had Andy and I had our differences about commerciality. That that was one of the things that I, I, I'm still, I, I still shy away from um, flat out commerciality. You know, I think if it happens to be commercial, all. All to the good, but only incidentally. The thing about it is, is that it has to have sort of, I don't know. It's a undi- it's a hard to define what credibility is, but it needs to have that feeling of credibility. And we got a lot of the that really that feeling from the blues. Funny enough, because the blues were the blues people that play those early blues guys were people that lived the life, and they expressed their life through their music. And I think it has to, for me, it had to have that element. And we were, perhaps I felt that we were getting away from that. We were, At this late you know, date, how do you feel about credibility? Same way, actually. So if someone wants to use a song you've written for a commercial, you say what? Well, it depends. I mean, I, I know that um, uh, All Right Now was used in a, a foot order advertisement. So that uh, and what what it was was that now you use this foot powder, your foot don't smell, and it's oh, there's the song. Right. I phoned Blackwell up and I said, "You got to take that off right now because that has no credibility whatsoever." And did he? Yeah, he did. In, in fairness to him, they did. It came right off the air, uh, and uh, so that's the sort of thing you know. You you have to protect it to some extent so that it's not just doing everything as much as you can. It's. Uh, it's not always easy to get things that you don't like your music being used in stopped if you don't have full control. Right. Okay, so then the band gets back together. What's thinking is going on there? Well, you know, we were all doing our different things to to minimal success, actually, to be honest. And Koss was getting into a state, we felt. I mean, we'd heard that, you know, he'd moved apartments and he was living in a place in uh, in Portobello Road which was at the time notorious for the drug scene that, that was there you know a lot of it and there was people knocking on his door you know and I said hey man try this try it. why don't you try this and he was experimenting with a lot of stuff and that was his downfall I think uh, and with the fact that the band had split up it became a crutch I, this is what 
I, you know, amateur psychology. And and um, he got into a bad state with it. You know, I, I, he did an album with uh, Kosov, Kirk, Tetsu and Rabbit, which they great musicians, all of them. And they did some good stuff. But he got into bad shape. When I went down there, I visited them in, in the studio and he fell asleep during a, uh, during a solo. I'm like, oh, God, what's going on, man? And so really, and Andy actually came to my uh, session I was doing. I had a band called Peace during this time because that's what I wanted, a bit of peace, I think. And um, he, he said, look, you know, Koss is in such a bad way. Shall we put the band together and get around him? And I went straight away. I said, let's do it. So we got back together and we tried. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the, he was gripped with with the stuff that he was taking. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd go to somewhere where, like Newcastle City Hall, we always had gone down there. I mean, it was just an amazing crowd. And... You'd look around. We'd go. On, we'd walk on stage. I'd, I'd look around and I'd see him, like, looking for the switch on his amp and not being able to focus where it was. And I thought, oh dear, we're in for a night here. And then he finally found it. And it was just, and the audience was uh, was very sympathetic. They were beautiful. The crowd. They were like, come on, Cos, you can do it. But really, um, he'd taken something. I don't know, some kind of downer. And it was, you know, it. it it was sad. It was very sad. We were all very sad. And so eventually we we had to move on. It's unfortunate, too, that in those days there was not the psychological help that there is now for people with addictions. And we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. I think Andy kidnapped him out of his house one day and, and he, was, he was completely irate because he tried to get him off this stuff and away from the, the crowd he was running with at the time. Um, but... Could have got arrested for that, I suppose. Cos was not very pleased. You kidnapped me out of my house. Um, but uh, yeah, so eventually we had to leave it and move on, you know. And then so, I'm, how, how yeah. did free end? Did free end be just by itself, or you already had bad company cooking in the background? Oh no, I didn't. I didn't have bad company cooking in the background. I um, no, I would. I, I was. I wanted to see Cos right, but I didn't know what to do about him or with him or for him we tried we put the band back together around him and we did a we sort of limped through a tour and it just wasn't it wasn't working you know we couldn't get him off this stuff um i had met mick ralph's when i was touring together with mott the hoople i had a band called peace this is the piece i was telling you about just now it was just a three three man outfit and that's when I hooked up with Mick. We sat in the band room and he played me Can't Get Enough of Your Love. And I said, wow, man, that is a hit. You know, he said, I said, are you going to do that with Mott the Hoople? He goes, no, nah, they're not really interested in it. Ian doesn't want to sing that. I said, well, you know, I'll sing it. Give it to me. And so that was the start of our sort of interest in each other, I guess, for songwriting. And I played him, I don't know, Rocksteady or something. And, and we, we found a very common, uh, we had a lot in common musically, you know, songwriting-wise and influence-wise and what we wanted to do. And, yeah, so that's, we hooked up. Okay, so you hook up. How do you hook up with Peter Grant? Well, um... I, we, I looked around, and it, we had this great band. And okay, we, so how did you flesh out the rest of the band? Oh well, I called Kirky up, and uh, 
I knew that he would love to play with Mick and myself because he's he's always said said you know let me know what you're doing, and then we auditioned a lot of bass players. And uh, a lot of bass players. I mean, we must have auditioned about 12 until we found Boz. Uh, and when it, I, I loved Boz because when... Um, Who's it, no longer with us. No, no, no. Uh, when he played... Uh, when I played bad, the song Bad Company on the piano, he was very... very lyrical on the bass he did it wasn't a dum da dum da dum right. dum dum it was very he sang on the bass you know and he had been a singer so he understood melody and he, but he was a bass player uh, and he brought that melod melodic feel to the bass and it was really good at do 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 you know a company and, and it was just very moody and it was uh, it, the song is very much a mood song there's very few chords in it, but it's a, it's a mood song that sets a mood and then has impact that grabs you, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, he's a good bass player. And that's, that was the band. So and the band is, is yeah. now set, and now yeah. you, how you hook up with Peter Grant. Right. Well, I, had, uh, I knew a guy called Peter Grant, he, uh, sorry, called uh, Clive Coulson, who had worked with Zeppelin, uh, Led Zeppelin, and with Peter Grant, and he came around to my cottage and and he said, you know, you should call Peter up. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I said, no, really, you should because he's told me he's interested. So you should call him up. And um, and he said, I want a job too, so call him up. <laughs> <laughs> so I called I called Peter up and uh, he was great, actually. He, he, he said, I said, you know, uh, Clive asked me to call you and you said you were interested. And he said, yeah, I'm interested in you. And I said, well, I, I come with a band, Peter, and we're going to call it Bad Company. He goes, Bad Company? You, you're going to call it that? And well, I said, yeah, we are. Because <laughs> Mick and I had already, you know, laid that down as in stone. It was set that down in stone because we were looking for names. We, we, we'd call each other up and say, how about, yeah, the four million air bubbles? No, I don't think so. And all these silly names. And then I called him up one day and I said, I said he said, hello, Mick here. I went, bad company. And he went... Now, the legend was it came from the movie, the same Well, title. it did. It? Well, it, I, I, saw the, um, I saw an advertisement for the movie and I thought, oh, that... Just, I love that. I'm going to write a song right now. And I just got one into it. And actually, Simon came, Simon came around a little bit later and helped me with a few of the lyrics. And, uh, and it was just such a mood. So I called Mick, and we were in this period of, like, what, what we're going to call the band. I said, bad. And there was a scrabbling noise on the end of the line. And he, he said, oh, that's cool, man. I dropped the phone. And, uh, you know, he was so excited he dropped the phone. So yeah, and that was that was set in stone. For, but we did we did come up against. I mean, this is this had happened before. Record companies and managers and people wanting to change the name. I mean, with Free, they they wanted to call us the Heavy Metal Kids. <laughs> I mean, and just hated that. Of course, talk about like credibility. Right. No. Right. No, it's just not there. But anyway, we did have a similar problem with with the name Bad Company because Peter thought it was. Uh, 
just too heavy, you know. But I said, no, it's not, man. People will love it. It's good. And it gives an identity and stuff. And so we uh, we stuck with it. They actually, their record company, wanted to release that as the first single. But I really loved Can't Get Enough Mix Song. Although Can't my favorite track, and that was a huge hit, yeah. my favorite track is Bad Company. Oh, really? Oh, the sound. Look, oh, the, the way you described it is exactly the way you do it. It yeah. starts quietly, yeah. then it builds. It gets you in your soul in a way that music doesn't today. You're listening to my conversation with legendary rock musician Paul Rogers, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying listening to this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see my guests as they join me, visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my conversation with Paul Rogers on the Bob Left Sets podcast. So you make a deal. How do you end up on Swan Song Records? Well, that was because... Um, Which was Led Zeppelin's uh, label. Yeah, Led Zeppelin had come to a point in their career where they wanted to have their own record company, their own company, yeah, and to nurture talent, which was really great of them, I thought. And um, we, we, were, we were just in the right place at the right time because Peter wanted to uh, manage us. When he came round, when he came to the first rehearsal, we had thought he hadn't turned up, actually. We were playing away and stuff. This was before we had Boz. We had a... a, a a bass player from from Wales who was a really good bass player. I actually offered him the job, but he didn't want to do it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I said, well, what do you turn up for, you know, audition for? But anyway, you know, but he was a good bass player. But anyway, but he was the guy that was there uh, outside the rehearsal room. We rehearsed in a little village hall in um, Albury in, in Surrey. And Peter Peter had sat outside and listen through the doors. A lot of that goes on, doesn't it, come to think of it? Cause that's I don't know, certainly an unmissable guy in person. Oh, running. yeah. Right. So, yeah. He, so he sat outside. And then he came in at the end of the rehearsal, and we're like, well, you're a bit late. We've, you, you've missed us, mate. Well, he said, no, I, I've heard you. I listened. I listened outside the door, and then it's good. I like it, and all that, you know. So um, he said to me, he said, look, I don't know about contracts and all that, I don't really want to do a contract first initially. You don't know me. I don't know you guys. So we're, we're going to just work together on a handshake. And I thought about that for a second and I just went, let's do it, you know. And so there wasn't a contract until a little bit, I don't even know how long later, maybe a year. Um, and and he took how much? Oh, uh, 20%. Mm-hmm. Now, he was he came from wrestling. Did he know anything about music? Uh, I don't know that he did really, <laughs> actually. No, maybe he didn't. <laughs> but um, he sure know how to take care of the musicians. Well, that's a question I had next. Yeah. So he was known as an artist advocate. Yes. Uh, ultimately, yes. financially, was he, uh, was it beneficial for you or did he take too much money? Oh, it was fantastic for us. I mean, it was unbelievable because we went from a small rehearsal room to doing stadiums in America uh, overnight, almost it seemed. It was uh, f- absolutely fantastic, and and the organisation behind that was superb because we flew in a Vickers Viscount four Rolls Royce engine. Uh, all the seats had been taken out and been refurbished. This was this is what Zeppelin used, so we got what they used very much, you know. And there was limousines and the tarmac whip us to the gig, whip us back to the, from the gig, and we were taking off, going to the next show. 
before the audience had left, was Elvis has left the building, you know. But when it's all said and done, how did it work out financially? Oh, pretty good. Pretty okay, good. the only reason you ask is, one, the time, and two, if you put on your business hat, if it's on their own label and yeah. it's distributed by Atlantic, yeah. they would take an extra cut. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened if you were signed directly to Atlantic. Uh, that's true. But then again, we would not have had that personal touch. That, right, you would uh, not have had that, that success. That, okay, so he know, says, I'll do yeah. it. I'll do it on a handshake. What's the next step? Uh, huge success. We, no, 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 a little uh, bit slower. You're making that first album. Oh, so you have, you oh, can't get yes, enough. Yes. Well, what happened was Peter called me. We were in rehearsal, and he said, you know, um, uh, the, uh, Led Zeppelin have got a house set up in Headley Grange, and that's where they record. They're, they're set to do their next album. And there's a mobile studio outside. It was Ronnie Lane's mobile studio. It's a 24-track, and uh, they're delayed. And the whole thing is set up there, just sitting there doing nothing. If you guys want to go in now, you can put a couple of tracks down. You've got, like, 10 days. We were like, yeah, because we were just bursting at the seams to put all this music down. And so it's out in the country, no distractions, lockout. There's only us there. You, you drive up, you get out of your car. There's no problem parking. You know, it's in the country. And everybody had their own room, and we all cooked for each other, our wives at the time. And somebody got up, we made the, we made the, uh, the wood fires in the place and all that. And it was very organic, very, very, you know, hippie heaven, if you like. So we're all in there in a bunch, and we just put everything we had down. How did you decide who to work with? I, I, they, um, Ron Neverson was brought forward by Zep, by Zep. They recommended him, and he was very good. And then, okay, how many of the songs were written when you went to Headley Grange? Oh, uh, hmm, most of them. I hadn't quite finished Rock Steady. We actually... I actually taught them uh, rock steady while we were recording it. Because <laughs> I had the guitar, turn on your lights, stay with me, and rock steady, boom, bam. Actually, Simon didn't even get that, you know. It's, you'll hear a mistake on that, but we, we let it run because um, sometimes mistakes are, have a, a kind of charm to them, you know. Absolutely. That's yeah. one of the problems with today's music. Yes. They, put, they make it so perfect, they uh -huh. lose the soul. What's yes, the back, yes. What's the backstory on Seagull? Well, Seagull, I went to, I drove out with uh, my family, my wife at the time, and uh, was it my kids? I don't think I had kids by then. No, I, and some friends and with an acoustic guitar. We were going to Portsmouth, and we pulled off at... Um, um, Hailing Island, there's an island there. And we sat on the beach, I had the guitar, and went to get fish and chips. And I watched the seagulls, and you could just look at the horizon. And this song just came to me like that. And I played, I didn't finish it then, I played it to Mick. Uh, played what I had of it to Mick. And he, uh, said, he came up with, Now you fly through the sky. Oh, really? Never asking why. Yeah, the middle eight. Right. Which really made the song. And uh, it... Uh, it nearly didn't make it on the album because uh, because it's an acoustic song and 
we weren't really uh, going to be known for for our acoustic uh, things. But I thought, well, you know, it's different. And you know, I, actually, Led Zeppelin did a lot of uh, a bunch of acoustic songs. They did an acoustic set in the middle, which I was always impressed with because it gave you light and shade, and it gave you. Uh, it wasn't wall to wall. Da 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 da. It was you know some something different, which when you would which made the heavier stuff sound heavier when you went back to it. So I thought it was a nice contrast. And uh, I, I played all the instruments on that song. Oh, really? I played the bass and the tambourine and whatever else is on there. And um, just captured, again, it's a mood song. You know, you have to be <laughs> sitting on a beach watching the misty horizon. Well, and the great thing the is, you know, is when you hear it, it takes you to the beach. It takes yeah. you to that environment. That's what's great. That's why it's such a great song. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so the yeah. album comes out from the perspective of being in America. It's an instant hit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it took us by surprise. It really did. It was a complete whirlwind. And all of a sudden, with the with the Led Zeppelin machinery, if you like, behind us, the airplanes and the limos and the security... Uh, and, and everything and, and all the places to stay there, houses and uh, Malibu Beach and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, we, it was a whirlwind. And at the end of it, when we got back, we all sat down. I looked at Mick and we said, what just happened, man? What did we do? How did we do that? You know, Because it was, it was just a thing that evolved for us. It was just natural. But the second album was bigger, Straight Shooter, than the first album. Yeah. Well, to some extent, we tried to recreate. We looked at it. We said, "Well, we were uh, we're in a lockout situation. We're in a, uh, the country. There was no distractions. So let's find a castle or something." So we found a castle or something, right? And and that's what we did. And this castle was Clearwell Castle. Was interesting in that they also had um, they had medieval dinners there in another part of the castle because it's a big place, and they had the studio in one second. And uh, I used to have to go and, and all these, there was big parties and all these people got dressed up in old English costumes and armor, suits of armor and stuff and, and ate roast pig and ate chucked cider down them. And I used to have to go in there and, and find Boz. <laughs> <laughs> Boz, where are you? And he'd be under a table somewhere knocking back the, the, the booze and the, the roast pig uh, or dancing on it. It depended really. And uh, I said, boys, we need you in the studio. Come on now. And um, that was one aspect of it. It wasn't exactly as private as the Headley Grange one. No, but the second, the second album, did you write those songs on the road or when you got back? Some of them were on the road. Shooting Star, Feel Like Making um, uh, Actually, Feel Like Making Love was a song that I had started in 1968, which is way before that, when we first came out with... With free, uh, and I, I hooked up with a bunch of a bunch of beautiful people that we were called, we like to call ourselves hippies in those days, and we hitchhiked out to Rio Nido, which is north of San Francisco, I believe, and we went out there and and slept in the woods and stuff, and I I, I had written that song, I started that song, then baby, when I think about you, and uh, we there was a lot of peyote about in those days, which was. Which is not the chemical one. I mean, it was a really, it was a really quite thing. And not that I'm recommending it, but that's what we were doing. And um, I, when we came to the uh, the album there, I it makes it. Uh, what have you got? And I said, Well, I've got this idea, baby. When I think about you, I think about love. And uh, he said, Oh yeah, I like that. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, go on. He said, Oh, what you need is this. 
And I went, when I feel like making that. He said, okay, that's good, we'll do that. And then we just moved on, you know. And it became one of our biggest songs, but you don't know at the time. It just was like, okay, that's good, yeah, we'll do that. And, Last yeah. spring, I was on a cruise to Alaska, and we went to the karaoke room, and I pulled up, this is midnight, feel like making love, and me and the 240-something girls were singing at the top of our lungs. It's funny how that resonated. I think that wow. was, think the interesting thing about Bad Company is it was both men and women. It wasn't like Rush, which was men only. Ah. Women were certainly enamored, too. Yes, good, good. Well, I mean, we like to please. <laughs> okay. And then what's the backstory on Shooting Star? Well, Shooting Star um, was, I was at my cottage in England, and I was walking down the garden, and actually I'd been thinking that, I went, well, Hendrix has died, and we lost Carson, and we had so many people, and Jim Morrison, and um, uh, help me, um, what's her name again? Uh, Janis Joplin. Joplin. Janice Joplin, you know, and all those people are thinking, wow, it's not a war zone. This is entertainment. Why are we, why are so many people dying? So that was what my thoughts had been. And I w was walking down my own garden path and I thought, don't you know? And I thought, oh, where have I heard that before? That you are a shooting star. And I thought, well, I must have heard that on the radio. And then I thought, well, I don't remember where. And I ran in the cottage and got the guitar and started to work the chords out. And I actually finished it on an airplane in with the boys when we were somewhere or other in America. Yeah. So it started life thinking about all the casualties of rock. Well, it's interesting because that's a gargantuan album. But there, and a couple of albums after, there's some songs that I sing to myself all the time. Some people say I'm a no good, laying in my bed all day. Yeah, it's a mixed song. I love that. You yeah. know, when the nighttime <laughs> comes, I'm ready to rock and roll my toes away. I mean, that's how I feel. You know, I feel like uh, kind of like Yogi Beer. I may sleep till noon, but before it's dark, I'll get every picnic basket in that's in Jellystone Park. And then another mixed song, Simple Man. Yeah. which is just one of my absolute favorites. You know, yeah. I think about that because music is about freedom and I want to be free. But mm -hmm. then you do Rough Diamonds and it's kind of going in the wrong direction. It's kind of mm. getting deflated, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. We did run out of steam a little bit. Uh, uh, who are you going to blame? I don't know. Uh, I could point fingers, but I'm not going to really. We we had been hammering it for a number of years, and I think we did. It was just it all got a little bit tired, and a little bit we lost focus. I do think. Now, yeah. did you actually break up before Desolation Angels, or the the album was so on together? I just felt wow, you know, I I wanted to leave throughout the album actually, but I rough diamonds. Yeah, I was committed. We were doing it. We were there. Let's do what we can. And um, I think in my mind I had left already, actually, yeah. And how do you come to do Desolation Angels, which is just an unbelievable comeback with a different sound, but with actually songs that stick in your head from start to finish? Um, you've got me now. I don't remember. Well, you know, so in any event, that's a completely different sound from yeah. what came before. How did that happen? I'd have to get... You know what? I've lost track of the sequence of the album. Well, you know, there's, the there's Electric Land. No, no, there's Lonely for Your Love. Uh, there's yeah. On one of them, the, uh, um, um, Cindy. Can I talk to Cindy? 
We can take a break, yes. Let's have a break. Yeah, that's a great idea. We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Paul Rodgers. Most of you know that I'm also a writer. But for those who think I'm just the host of this podcast, you can check out my archive at leftsets.com. In addition to reading my commentary on music, tech, and the world at large, you'll be the first to find out when we've published a new conversation. Now, more with legendary rock musician Paul Rogers, recorded at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Okay, you're coming back to us after a break where we had to go to the discography. You know, at first I thought that uh, Paul was a little lost, which is always funny that fans are more accurate than the act. But I was also at fault here and that I had the order wrong. I'm playing I – mean, I'm such a bad, bad company fan that for some reason doing research last night, it stuck in my head that Rough Diamonds was before Desolation Angels. But let's just recap. So after Burning Sky, which certainly has some great tracks on it but doesn't get as good reviews or have as much success as Run With The Pack and Straight Shooter, you do Desolation Angels. But Desolation Angels, two years later, as opposed to an album every year, has a completely different sound from what came before. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, Bob, you know, it is true that uh, some of the fans know more about me than I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, Lucy Pillar, for instance, knows more. She goes further back than I do. It's incredible. Um, so, but, but Desolation Angel, uh, actually, let's go to uh, Burning Sky. Burning Sky, we were a little burned around the edges on that one, actually. Uh, but we did pull it out of the bag. But I remember saying to Mick that, saying to Mick that, um, you know, if we if we make this album and we don't like it, we're not going to put it out. And he said, yes, yes, yes. But uh, the wheels were rolling and it went out. And, you know, it's not, it's a good album. I think the track Burning Sky is pretty strong. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I wrote that the night before we recorded it. Uh, and we were scrabbling for mu- for songs, actually, you know, and I had the chorus and I had the verse chords and I showed the the, the, the guys, the, the sky is burning, and I showed them the verse chords and, and we went, we pushed the red button and I made the whole thing up right there on the spot, pretty much. Uh, waiting for the venture and the prisoners and all that, uh, the story um, right there. So, you know, we were, it was sort of a jam, but it was it was pretty strong, I thought. But well, but there's one other track on that, though. I, it was also the guitar sound in your delivery, Leaving You, was a great track. Oh, Burns yeah, track. deadly, wasn't it? Oof, yeah, it's killer. Okay, so how did you decide, why were there two years between Burning Sky and Desolation Angels? Uh, we were, uh, we did need a break, but I did think that we, would, uh, we were energized again for Desolation Angels, uh, rock and roll fantasy. Gone, Gone, Gone was uh, uh, Boz's first attempt at um, songwriting. But it was actually good! It was great. I mean, I, I like to include it in the set now. And Crazy Circles was, was well received. Oh, the guitar, no, so who wrote the guitar part on that? Uh, Which the, makes it uh, the that the guitar part, like the acoustic guitar yeah. and the solo. Oh, that was Mick. It was lovely, wasn't it? Right. Well, uh, you were talking about acoustic on Seagull. I wondered if you wrote that. Oh uh, well, I I played acoustic on uh, Crazy Circles. Right. Uh, the acoustic rhythm, you know, dang, dang, dang. But the the Spanish type of solo thing that goes on there, that was Mick, and it was just beautiful. I remember he just went out to the into the studio and got his sound and just went into that, and I just was yes, that is so beautiful. Nice one, mate. But the other thing is, even though you did not write it, one of your best vocals of all time is the opening track on the second side, Lonely for Your Love. 
Oh, that's Mick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the way you have a way of digging down deep in your soul and pushing right up the limit without going over it. We live in an era of vocal histrionics. That's what all these yeah. TV shows are about, the Melisma, the Mariah Carey. But you have a way of emoting where there's still emotion, which is the same as emoting, underneath and just pushing it, which is the essence of rock and roll. That's why I was talking about Simple Man earlier. You yeah. want to feel free. Yeah. You know, and the, the lyrics on Lonely for Your Love, uh-huh. the way you sing it just blows my mind. Well, that's a very very interesting that you should notice that because that's a really good point. Uh, Sam Moore uh, has a way of doing that same thing. He puts a little gravel there, but not too much. Exactly. You know, Sam you know Moore, I mean? Sam and Dave. Uh, yes. And it just takes you to where the emotion is is just rasping, you know, just it just exactly, it exactly you, gives you that edge. I love that. Man. Right. Okay. So, but then you do make now getting the order correct. I was wrong. Right. You do make rough diamonds, which is seen by disappointment, is that by everyone? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. The title for that. I I wanted the band. I wanted us to get back to our roots, and I organized a gig, a show uh, at um, a village hall near where I lived, and we were just going to play what we wanted to a local crowd and that's it and I just wanted to do that and I called it Rough Diamonds because I didn't want to say this is bad company playing in a local village hall it would have been insane you know so I just pretended we were a a local band called Rough Diamonds but they lift we lifted that and used it for the album title but and but really they're not Rough Diamonds they're they're kind of like it's a it is a little tired there's some good 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 things well that is the album with Electric Land Oh, Which was but a great yes, track. but Electric Land, yes, I think, yeah. Electric okay, Land. so then how does the band break up or go on hiatus? Uh, well, you know, I, I think that, as I said earlier, I think I would, this is the album I was referring to when I, we'd all got a little tired of each other, I think, and it was time to move on, and it, I, it was felt very strongly. But we did the we did all these tracks, and... You know, it, we were committed to make an album, and I think what, that's what we did. Now, yeah. after a short period of time, the band reforms with another lead singer, Brian Howe. What's your viewpoint on that? I actually don't have one. You don't have a view? Well, that sounds like someone who's been through a lot of litigation. <laughs> Yeah, I, would I, that be an act? And I'm I not going to pull something say, out of it. Can you I don't say no say. comment? Yes, you can certainly <laughs> say no comment. Of course, the you know it turned into uh, the manager they had is no longer with us himself. He turned it into he managed a band called Giant. And it actually had a completely different sound, but they did have a couple of hits. Yeah. And then ultimately you reform, but much longer down the line. But next you end up working with Jimmy Page in the firm. Can I just say this before we go on? Absolutely. Um, I do have something to say, and that is that I felt after I left that the band's reputation, musical reputation, went down the toilet. And and, and the, the respect was gone. And I didn't like it. That's when I came back. I came back to reestablish what we were. And I think that's what we're doing now, is reestablishing the credibility again. You know? Well, let's stay on this topic for one second. Yeah. I saw you perform with Bad Company uh, almost two summers ago. You go out with uh, Free Spirit. You're going out solo with Beck. When do you do Bad Company gigs, and what is the thinking there? Um, I do, I, I, I sort of do about 20 or 30 shows a year because I, I try to keep, 
I want to keep the energy, the enthusiasm, and the uh, the interest really for me and for for the band and the listeners. Uh, so I do different different things. Uh, whatever comes to me, the free spirit thing, if you like, has evolved and we've evolved from doing it in England and then wanting to bring it here. So we made space for it in the itinerary to do the tour here with Jeff Beck, with Ann Wilson and Deborah Bonham, I should mention as well. She's opening and she's a beautiful singer. Um, so what we do... Bad, I do bad company shows in between. When the offers come in, we we look at them and we... Now, do. Mick Ralph's health, what is the status of that? Uh, Mick is, uh, you know, as well as can be expected for a, a guy who's had a stroke. And he can't, you know, he's not really... Uh, he's still got his sense of humor, but he's, he's having trouble with his right hand, I do believe it is. Uh, and I, we took him a small guitar so he could make some noise, some musical noise. Uh, it's it's not great, though. It's not great where he's at. Okay, but let's go back to the narrative. So you end up working with Jimmy Page. How does that come together? Oh, right. Let's see. How did that come together? I had a studio. When I uh, left Bad Company, I, had, I put a studio together in my house in the attic in Kingston. Not Kingston, Jamaica. Kingston, uh, the U.K., Excuse me. And um, I was making, I was recording and doing a solo album, etc., etc. And Jimmy Page popped over, and well, he kept popping over. Actually, he come over a couple of times just to check me out, see what you're doing. Hey, and uh, eventually, were you friends with him since oh, you had the yeah. same manager? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'd all see each other in the office, and we, Bad Company and Led Zeppelin, would go to each other's shows and stand backstage, you know, catcalling each other and <laughs> <laughs> rubbish, you know, and stuff like that. But we're all, it's all friendly. And uh, we, so Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy came around and he, he brought this cassette, because we were cassette in those days, of music. And it was a beautiful piece of music. And he said, can you write some lyrics to this? And I I'd said, oh, well, I'll give it a go. And it was, uh, it turned out to be Midnight Moonlight Lady, which is a, a beautiful piece of music that that he Created and I did the lyrics on, um, and that was the start of us working together and writing together. And then we got a call from the people that were running the the arms tour, and they said we need another act, if you like, for the American leg of the the touring we're doing. And we heard that you and Jimmy were in the studio. Would you like to do a half hour spot? And I I looked at Jimmy and, and he, he I. I said, well, we, we, what is it? Oh, no, they said, would you like to do a spot? And I said, um, well, we only have, a, like, about 20 minutes, half an hour of music. They said, That's all we need. And uh, so we didn't have any excuses, so we went out. Oh, I said, we didn't have a rhythm section either. Well, then we'll get you a rhythm section. <laughs> and um, so we went and we did that, and that be became the firm because Jimmy was, mm, at a loose end, I do think he wouldn't mind me saying, after... Uh, after John had died, you know, they were all, everybody was just so upset. And he hadn't touched a guitar in a couple of years when he came around to see me. And um, everybody around him had said, well, whatever you do, don't ask him to play the guitar because that's a no-no. He's not going to touch the guitar. And I thought, oh, how am I going to... So he walked into the studio. I said, hey, Jimmy, how are you doing? Did you bring your guitar? <laughs> and everybody, like, dived under the table, went, ah, ah. You said it, the taboo thing. But by the end of the evening, 
he had restrung his guitar and was playing and we were doing stuff. And it was wonderful to see him because I thought, you know, if a guy's depressed, what you need to do is play music, any music at all. And so we were just, we were jamming by the end of the evening and that's when afterwards he brought me that piece of music and we did, we composed together um, Midnight Moonlight Lady and went on from there. And you end up, the first album comes out and there are a couple of successful tracks. There's uh, Radioactive and Satisfaction Guaranteed. Yeah. And does it live up to your expectations and Jimmy's? Uh, I don't think it did, really. I think, I think uh, no, I, I think we did what we could under the circumstances. Um, we, uh, there, um, music is... Huh. No, I don't think it did, to be honest. But there was a second album. I think Jimmy played great, though. Uh, we, yeah, we tried. Yeah, we had uh, Chris Slade on the drums. He's a great drummer. And uh, Tony Franklin on bass, great bass player. We were going to have Pino Palladino, but uh, he, re he, he, didn't, um, he didn't make it, he didn't do the tour in the end. So we settled on Tony Franklin because he'd done all the rehearsals with us and he knew all the songs. Um, so, yeah. But any any thought why it didn't work? Um, I you know I was a little burned at that point myself. I did not want to go on the road, and that's why uh, that's why we made an agreement between us. Jimmy said, uh, "Let's go on tour," uh, and I I said, "Well, I don't know if I really want to. I've just come out of bad company because I'm just burned, and I just want to stay home and make music in my little studio here." and regroup myself. But he said, well, and, but he really wanted to go, and I really wanted him to be happy. So I said, well, like, let's go. And he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, we'll do two albums and two tours supporting those albums, and that'll be it. And there was, again, it was a handshake. And that's what we did. That's, that's as far as we took it. That's as far as it, it went. And how'd you end up working with Kenny Jones and the law? Well, I was looking around for... For the next thing, you know, and I met um, I met uh, I met him in a club, and we talked about music. And I said, you know, I never I never really know which which direction I want to go in, or whether I want to go into soul or blues or flat out rock, you know, because I do all of those things, and I'm interested in doing all of those things. But he said, he said, why don't you just the two of us get together, and we'll. We'll do a rock album, we'll do a blues album, we'll do a soul album, and we'll do... And all we'll do, you and I will be the centre of it, and we'll just change other musicians around us. You know, we'll put a brass section in, or this or that. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Let's try that. So that's what, that was the initial thing with, uh, with the law. Now, that had a title track... Which yeah. was the hit, which, of course, for those who were fans, they think of Bad Company in the title track. Yeah. And then Laying Down the Law, and the band was called The Law. Yeah, I think and to some extent I was trying to recreate what I'd done with Bad Company because uh, um, uh, um, Kenny said to me, uh, I want a title for a song, Laying Down the Law. And I went, I'll have it ready by Thursday. And I actually did because... <laughs> I, I give myself and da 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 on the piano, and I thought, well, you know, it were you know, it worked before. We maybe to have a theme tune around the name is good, you know. So those of us at home who saw it that way, that was the real way. It sort of was. You okay, know. so that yeah. that plays out, and then you go out 
with the remain remnants of Queen, Queen and Paul Rogers. Were you a Queen fan? I loved their music. I can't say that I ever bought, went out and bought their singles, their records. Uh, but I loved it when I hear, heard it on the radio. I want to break free. You know, I mean, I thought the guitar playing was great. I thought Freddie was fantastic. I went in with a lot of respect for Freddie, and I came out from that with, with a, a ton of respect. He was such a great guy, such a great musician, and so many uh, great songs he, he had written and so many influences. And I think, you know, he was influenced by the right people in many ways, like Aretha Franklin, you know, uh, even says that on one of his live t- uh, Thing when you got the audience singing, you guys sound like Aretha, you know. Um, so that started out with, let's see, I was asked by Chris Blackwell actually. They were doing a, a TV show, and I, they said, "Would you come on?" And we're going to honor Chris Blackwell. And would you finish the show with "All Right Now"? And Queen or the remnants of Queen will be on there. So Brian called me and said, "Look, um, Brian May, Brian May." Uh, if you will be our singer for We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions, we will be your backing band for All Right Now. And I went, oh, Queen, my backing right. band. Oh, that sounds good. So we actually, we did that, and it was, it was great. And I didn't think we had much in common, but I, when we put those three songs together, they were in the same ballpark somehow, you know. We Will Rock You, We Are The Champions, and All Right Now is just sort of out there in that arena space, you know. And I thought, well, you know, maybe. And then he called me up and asked me, would I like to do uh, just two or three shows for fun? And I said, well, I, yeah, well, let's do that. We can do that. But it turned into, like, two world tours and a studio album. It's just the way things are, you know. You, 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 you get involved and it's, you can't just walk away. So uh, it, it turned into, I think, four years. And at the end of that four years, I was like, well, I... I this is not the rest of my life here with Queen, bless them. I love them to pieces, but I have to go my, do my own thing. So it was your decision to move on. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. And they're still working now with the American Idol contestant. Well, you've got to remember that before, uh, after Freddie, <coughs> they didn't tour. Right. They, they did the odd gig. They did Wembley. They did some great gigs, but not touring. They had David Boy with them. They had um, Michael... Um, Michael... Help me. Hey? Michael from what band? Um, George Michael. George Michael. George Michael. Thank you. And they had some great singers, Dave Boy, and, and all these great singers. And I thought George Michael was great on that as well. But they didn't, and that Elton John too. They had a lot of singers, but they... And, and, and I got together with them, and I showed them, look, hey, you've got all these, these great songs, you've got this great organization behind you, you've got a lot of fans, all you need is the right singer up front. I will do that, and hopefully we can make it work. And we toured. So I told, I taught them they could tour. And they are now touring, so that's good. Okay, so what do you think of today's music scene? Uh... I think technology has gone on in leaps and bounds, but we're kind of in danger of overdoing it. And one thing that does not change is that it has to come from here, no matter what the technology is. The technology is a, a bit of cat gut on a on a old broom. They've still got to come from here, or if it's a fantastic, uh, you know, gizmo, a, a, a technological wonderment, 
you have to it has to come from here whatever the instrument is and we might be missing that a bit we we might be getting into we used to say that you can mix the bowls right out of a track if you're not careful you've got to keep that essence you know it's so perfect that it loses its essence you've got to stop before you get that i think you've got to keep got to keep the essence and you get that playing live i think you get that imagining you're playing live but it's frustrating if you talk to superstars from your era if you make new music it's not like it used to be it used to be everybody was aware it came out everybody was listening to the same radio stations and you could make a break depending on the quality of the song whereas you can make a great song today and almost no one hears it what's it like being on the creative end of that well, you look around, and and people people have impact when they when they break and they uh, Hendrix, for instance. When I saw Hendrix, I, I remember the DJ saying, "Oh, we've got a, we've got a young man from young band from America here." It was Pete Murray, who was a DJ, young band here from America, and here they are, Jimi Hendrix, and he put his arm up like this, and then Jimi Hendrix comes on with the hair, with the hey Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? And, and then he picks his guitar up and plays it with his teeth. And it was just so wild. He put the guitar on. And when the camera cut back to Pete Murray, he still got his arm out announcing them. Like, <laughs> he hadn't stopped going like that. He was, he was amazed and horrified, I think, at the same time. But, I mean, the rest of us just... I mean, we woke up the next day, went to school, and Jimi Hendrix was, like, it. Um... But they, th- there are certain people that have that sort of impact when it's real, I think. You know, I don't know what, what, that, what that means exactly, what that real is. But it's something that touches a nerve and, and, and catches fire throughout the... Have you heard that young band, Greta Van Fleet? Yes, I have. For those of, who don't know, uh, certainly the tracks that have been released so far are very Zeppelin-like. What do you think of Greta Van Fleet? I think they're great, actually. I do, I do hear a lot of the influences from Zeppelin and perhaps even us, you know. But it's all to the good. Well, it's interesting because people from our era were influenced by blues tracks from the 30s, 40s, which was only 30 or 40 years after the renaissance of rock in the UK, late 60s, early 70s, where it's already been almost 50 years since that sound. So it's ready for that sound to come back. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still, I can put Howlin' Wolf on say, playing Backdoor Man and, and still get a real kick out of it. I still get, you I am, I don't know who's drumming on that, but it's just the laziest, coolest drums you ever heard. Do you still play music at home? Uh, yes, I do. I play blues. I play some classical. I like Holt's Planet Suite. Uh, I love that, actually. I uh, I play... I like to collect a bit of vinyl nowadays. I still listen to Aldous Redding. Um, and, and I still listen to um, Junior Wells. So Somebody, the stuff you're collecting is not... is, you know, the old blues stuff, not the big hit stuff on vinyl. Mm, no, actually it's not. Very, very few of... Very little actually hits me hard like... It did in the past, like when I first heard "Buy with a Little Help from My Friends" by Joe Cocker, you know, or, or, or back in the day. I mean, those songs—the songs that hit me then, "Midnight Hour" by Will Smith—they—they they still they give you a tingle in the back of your neck. Well, they still do that for me, and it's very hard for me to find that 
with new stuff. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel the same way. You know, there are a lot of people who want to appear young, so they say today's music is as good as it was. I mean, the people don't understand it was music was all we had. We were addicted to the radio, mm. and growing up in the UK and growing up in the United States is not exactly identical, but we were addicted to the radio, especially after the Beatles came out. Before that, we were listening to sports in the Four Seasons, and it was everything. And when the band made a statement, whether it be musical or sociological, you really paid attention. Yeah. Whereas now you talk about credibility. So many acts today are seeing the end goal of fame and riches as opposed to the music itself. I think that's true. I think that's possibly quite true. Yeah, uh, to me, like the fame and fortune, the uh, the showbiz aspect of it was never really it at all. And I think I probably got that from listening to those black guys because they they were just telling their story. They weren't seeking fame, seeking fortune, or any of it. Um, the guitar shapes, swing pools, or any of that. They were they were just doing their thing, and and as it happened, people like me, I loved it, you know. And so also back in the rock era, 64 to 80 or so, or certainly MTV era, you mentioned Joe Cocker, uh, you mentioned Otis Redding. Anybody else, any other records that stand out? Oh, yeah, there'll be so many. Uh, I'd have to think of it for a minute, though. Um, there are, let's see, well, uh, uh, The Temptations, The Four Tops, you know. And, well, I mentioned that one. The, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. What did you, yeah. you ever think of the uh, the Stones cover of Ain't Too Proud to Beg? It's all right. I mean, they, they were good. One of the great things about the Stones is they, yeah, they did these arms of mine as well. Right. But um, uh, what great, they introduced me to a lot of music that, you know, Solomon Burke, I'm so glad to be here tonight and I'm so... I'm glad to be home, and I believe that I've got a message for every man and every woman here tonight that's ever needed someone <laughs> to love, someone to stay with all the time, when you're up or when you're down. I love all that, you know. Uh, so they they introduced me to a lot of uh, a lot of quite obscure blues, actually. You know, um, it might be one o'clock and it might be three. Time don't mean that much to me. I've got my plans, I don't know about you. I'll tell you exactly what I'm gonna do. Get in the groove and let the good time roll. I mean, that's a great, great song, great lyrics. <laughs> Your rendition right there, we should print that. Put it on Spotify right now. <laughs> the, I, thank you. They, they. Well, you sang it in such a soulful way. I mean, it was sort of voce. I mean, it wasn't full belting, but... Uh... But it's an example of lyrics that just flow. You know, they're not forced. They're not, oh, what shall I do next? They just, somebody is there, and they just, like, it came out. That's, those are the kind of lyrics. Well, do you I have like. any tricks you use to make sure that you get what you want down? Uh, as far as songwriting, no, you've got you've to listen to, if, if somebody gives me a piece of music to write songs on, I say, I go, uh, what is this music saying? What can I, what? do I hear it saying to me and I try to get in tune with the music but lyrically you know so that you can you express what the music seems to be saying to you I might be wrong and I might be right might be one o'clock and it might be three <laughs> but, but uh, you know it, but you kind of get in tune with what you think it's what it's saying to you okay yeah. so at this late date you're still standing. You can still sing. You've had gargantuan success with multiple acts. What's left for you to accomplish? 
Well, the next tour is the uppermost in my mind. I've done some. I've just done some some bad company shows with Leonard Skinner, and it was just amazing. I this love, is Leonard Skinner's last tour, theoretically. Yes, yes, theoretically. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if one can ever really retire. You know, I, I think you never get too far away from it. I've tried to, you know, sit back at least, but I just couldn't. I mean, things happen, you know, things evolve. Well, how much of it is the energy from the crowd that you miss? Well, the energy from the crowd was just fantastic. It's crackling electricity. You know, it is one thing to listen to, like Sif with um, with Leonard Skinner, it's one thing to listen to Simple Man. They're Simple Man. They have a Simple right, Man Of course. Too. And it's a good thing to listen to the record, but it's a, quite another to sit under the stars with 30,000 other people and hear those opening chords and know that it's coming. You know, under the moonlight, it, it is just magical. And it, the, the actual air there, it just crackles. There's a, a lot of soul in, in the atmosphere. And I think that's what people love about live concerts. It's a coming together. It's a meeting of the tribe. And uh, a focal point, instead of a campfire, it's the lights of the stage. That's so at this is. point, has live superseded recording for you? Oh, uh, it's a good question. Uh, recording is still important to me, though. I mean, I do like to make a good record, but I, I, I love playing live. Yeah, probably, probably it has. Maybe it has. So what have you not accomplished <laughs> that you still want to accomplish, if anything? I'm still learning. I really am. And I love to put, um, uh, you know, a, a set of music. I love what I'm doing, um, taking Bad Company, looking at all the catalogue and making a show that works cohesively and starts and moves through and keeps your attention right the way through so that at the end of it, you've been on a magic carpet ride and you're happy. And I want us to do the same thing with, with Free Spirit, you know, which we were doing in the States, in the UK, and we, we do here. But I also will add some bad company material in with the Free Spirit because I think people expect me to do that. They'll be disappointed right. if they don't get feel like making love and can't get enough of it. Unfortunately, that's true. You don't want it to be that way, but people don't get the memo. Well, you know, they, they pays their money, they take the choice. I mean, I think they have a right to expect. You know, if you go see a show, you have a right to expect a certain amount. You know, I don't think you can stand too much on your... Um, I don't know, your musical integrity or whatever it might be, that you, I'm not going to play this because, you're, because everybody wants it. You know, I like to see a happy crowd. I'd love to see a happy so crowd. So when you're singing those hits, which you've sung so many times before, are you thinking about doing your laundry and where you, you get to the <laughs> hotel on the right time, or are you still present? Yeah, I'm very much present. You know, you have to be present. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the things about live. It is, it's, it's live. And you are there, you get one shot at it. You know, you get the one shot. So you, I, I and I'm listening to the guitar player, listening to the drums. We all are aware of each other. We're speaking to each other musically and then to the crowd. So we're all in this together. It's like a, a great unity. It's a great sense of uni unity playing music. And so you, you're leaning on each other and you're depending on each other and you don't want to let each other down by, by not being focused. Now, at this yeah. late date, if you were walk ironically without the internet, if you were walking through an airport or you were in town at the height of the success of Bad Company, you were recognized by everybody. And what's it like walking the street today? Uh, it's pretty good. You know, I, I don't get bothered too much uh, at all, really. I don't think people are, are 
people know me in the supermarket or anything like that. I mean, they know me in my hometown. They oh, where have you been? You know, but uh, well, is that the, a good the, thing or a bad thing for you? Uh, well, I, a bit of it's nice. It's lovely to be recognized and just people to be excited. Yeah, it's 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 a nice thing. But I can understand, you know. I mean, I, I when I stood with. Um, with with Queen, you know, the fans were absolutely nuts. Really, I've got to tell you, you were nuts, and um, but they were lovely. But I mean, I I'd finished. I did my last show in Rio de Janeiro, and I said to Cynthia, "We're at Rio de, 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 de Janeiro. Let's go and walk along the beach. We're done. We're finished. We're out of here. We will go home tomorrow." So we thought, "Oh, what a nice peaceful." Book. And we walked outside, and all these people just mobbed us. And I thought, oh, "What's happened?" And, and and they were like crazy. They just wanted, "Oh, sign this, sign this, and that." It was like a, it was. I can understand. So essentially, any time that you're looking for that recognition, you can get it by going back to work with Queen or, or something like that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, I suppose so. Maybe I don't know. It, it's not what it's about, though. To me, I mean, I, I like to meet people and be uh, and be gracious if they uh, if they love the music. That's what it's all about for me. It's not it's not uh, showbiz fame. I, I I'm not into that. And are your kids into music? They are actually. I didn't really encourage them, but they were surrounded by it, and so they were writing songs on the piano when they were four years old. You know. So uh, and you know you'd get Bill Wyman would pop round for a cup of tea and they were incredibly unimpressed you know <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, they yeah they're great I love my kids I've got grandkids now and I love them to pieces too you know okay well we've been here with Paul Rogers. Vocalist extraordinaire from all the bands we just talked about, from Queen to Free and Bad Company and Jimmy Page in between. We have to do a whole other session where we don't talk about you, we just talk about music. Because there's a lot of insight here, which is so fascinating to me. You know, well, the, way, you. the way you talked about the mood, etc. A lot yeah. of people don't talk about because the creative process, as opposed to, you know, because especially when it comes to music, it's not something you can really learn. But I'm trying to say it's not you can, you can open a book and say A, B, C, D. Yeah. You have to go on your own journey, stumble yeah. on your own feelings, and you've obviously done that. And thanks so much for sharing your thoughts today. It's my pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. Don't turn off your podcast player. Stop. Really, hold your fingers back at this moment because after the podcast ended, Paul and I engaged in a conversation about music and politics. I know you'd love to hear it. Here it is. But you know, on that on that line, on that what you were saying there, the um, the idea of mood. You know, if you want to write about mist in the trees and the full moon, you've got to go and sit out in that, and then you'll get the feeling of it, and you'll get the feeling into the music, and something that you would would not occur to you technically, like, will occur to you emotionally. That will explain. Well, there's a couple of things there. In order to be creative, you have to live a life, which is hard when you're working so hard. Yeah. And the other thing is I find my best ideas come in the shower. It's yes. like when I'm yeah. doing nothing else, uh -huh. I will remember that, mm -hmm. and then I'll have to run to the computer or whatever to write about it. Yeah. But it's also frustrating. I mean, what I always found fascinating with bands from the 70s is, you know, okay, we did an album, we're going on the road, we promote it, now we have to write another album. Okay. Yes. We have to actually turn it on. I know. Well, you know, I said to Armand Erdogan, I said, you know, you get your whole life to write the first album. 
And then you've got like a year between it. And he looked at me and said, what are you saying? I said, well, that's what it is. You, you know, you're working towards your first album your whole life, you know. And then all of a sudden it's successful and you've got to think, well, what did I do? And can I do it again naturally? Ooh, gets complicated. Well, the other thing is, you know, it's one thing to write on demand. It's another thing that when you're writing that first album, you have the inspiration. Mm. And you say, oh, yeah, you know, you have all these times. Next time I say, well, I have two weeks. I have to write ten songs. Yeah. It's yeah. like, how does one do that? Well, with difficulty. I, I don't know. You know, I, I wish I had a, 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 a pat answer, but there probably isn't one, really. Okay, but one other thing. You've written some iconic songs, and we covered this, but you, did you know they were iconic when you wrote any of them? Uh, you know, you feel that this has got something. You do feel that little whisper that, you know, this has got something. And that, that, that isn't a lot of words saying this has got something, but you mean, I mean that special something. You kind of do know that on some level, I think. I think you do. I remember, yeah. you know, we were talking about Al Cooper recently in the podcast, but, you know, he produced the first couple of Leonard Skinner albums. Okay. And after the first one came out, before Freebird was even a hit, this is summer of 73, he's living in Atlanta, and they call him and say, we got a new song we want to record. Yeah. Can we come in on Monday? <laughs> they come up, and they record Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, my God. Which doesn't come out for a year. Uh-huh. Okay. So I say, Al. Did you know it was hit? And he goes, it was Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's some stuff's in Del- – I guess to me when – on some level there's the old Hollywood adage, no one knows anything. But sometimes you know. When you hit an 11, you know. Yeah, you hit the sweet spot. Right. There's a feeling. Right goes right up your arms. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And yeah. you and you wish you could do that all the time, but you can't. <laughs> exactly. That's the way. And you're and that's what's that sweet time. about it, right? Exactly. You, if you could do it every time, it would. And be, of course, yeah. the old cliche is: after you do it, you think you'll never do it again. <laughs> It'll never happen. And then when it does, go oh. Yeah. And it fights in between. There's some kind of alignment of the stars happens as well. You know, there is. There's something cosmic, and we are we're all in touch with that. All the time, I think. It's, it's just we, we block it out. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I would describe it in some way. You have to get, you have to live, something has to happen. I said you cannot sit down and do it. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing that I find is that you you have to be shooting for the moon to, to hit the moon. Oh, really? But you... You see, if you're not shooting for the moon, you'll never hit it, right? But if you're shooting for it and you 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 hit ninety percent all the time, there will come a day when you hit it. But if you're not even trying, well, then you definitely won't. Well, that goes to another thing. I mean, you talk about, you know, you moved to London and the guys went back home. Yeah, yeah. People don't understand. It is so hard to make it. And when you're hungry, man, and, it gets really hard. And be well. The other thing is. The longer you go down that path, you see other people who've gone down a different path yeah. and are you know, getting married, have houses and stuff like that, yeah. and you're still hungry. <laughs> well, you had success relatively soon. Yeah, I mean, I did. It didn't seem soon. It seemed like an eternity. Of but, course. But looking back, it was a matter of months, you know, from, from there to there to there. From meeting costs, it was a matter of months before, boom, we were making records and zooming up and the what charts. What did your mother say? Uh... She was behind it. She she was, uh, oh, you know what she did say? She said to me, you shouldn't let it get into your blood, son. I said, Mom, 
It's too late for that now. <laughs> and then, of course, okay, yeah. I don't know if you know, remember this old manager, David Krebs? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. He says that the music from that era, we couldn't even make today. Like, he managed Aerosmith. And one of my, he says he knows one of my favorite Aerosmith songs called Lord of the Thighs. He says, you couldn't put that out today. Okay? So it's interesting. And the other thing is, I'm sure you went on the road and had a good time. Okay? Whereas today, with cell phone, it's not even the same experience. Well, life isn't, is it? I mean, it changed the whole life experience. Uh, people can't, can't get away from their phones. I don't have one. I'm, I'm, I think I'm the only person in the world without one. So you don't have a? Would you have a? You don't have a smartphone, or you don't have a phone at all? Well, I have a one of these, right? You know. But you don't have a mobile phone. No, I don't. And you had one and gave it up, or you don't want to have one? Well, I've had them for for the length of a tour, and then when they run out of money, I I haven't renewed them, and so they've got become well, defunct. They're point, in a drawer somewhere. At this point, I never talk on the phone. I mean, if someone's calling me for a doctor's appointment, whatever. Other than that, I won't talk on the phone. And I have reasons for that because usually people want something and it takes them a long time to get to what they want. Yes. Oh, is it a beautiful day? What, did you do? <laughs> what is it you want? <laughs> but I do find it good to have information at my fingertips. And I do like having songs, you know. Now, your wife said you're heavily into the political thing. I, I, I'm concerned for the world, just as everybody else is. You know, I mean, I, 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 one minute we're at each other's throats and it's almost a nuclear war. The next minute we're all pals. I mean, it is literally next minute. The North Korean guy, what's his name? Kim Jong-un. I mean, just, what, a month ago, they were talking about nuclear war. Like, it was like, yeah, nuclear war, yeah. I mean, even to discuss that, a year ago was not not cool, but this it's too it's not a light subject at all at all. I mean, I worry for my grandkids actually mostly, not for me. But well, do you feel that there's anything musicians can do? I think we can deliver a message of love, and that's what we can do strongly, and that's what we should be doing. Yeah, but now, generally speaking, musicians are promoting a message of commerciality. Oh yeah, isn't that sickening? Now, is that amazing or what? Like I said in the podcast, I can remember specifically on the Merritt Parkway hearing "All Right Now." I remember skiing at Snowbird, singing "Simple Man" to myself. Dancing around in my underwear long before Risky Business with Live for the Music. Paul had amazing stories. I can't believe we talked to him. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, I'm Bob Lefset.